Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. Ravi, I am, as of waking up this morning, 41 years old. Wow, you don't look a day oh. over 40. Oh, no, thank you. Yeah, you no, look great. No, you, that, you look I'll great. take it. You look great. Happy birthday. Uh, how are you, you. going to celebrate tonight? Uh, well, I'm hoping that it doesn't rain so that I can uh, coach True's baseball team tonight. If that happens, it's a pretty good birthday baseball 48 hours, uh, 24 hours, really. Do you just play baseball every day? I, I mean, try. that's my vision of your life. Yeah, Or co- you coach or play baseball every day, it seems to me. Yeah, that's my aspiration. I mean, I'll be honest. Yeah. So I... Last night was the opener for the Kansas City Hustlers. Thank you to everybody who came out. We actually, we had a a little, a smattering of a crowd, which was pretty amazing because it was in the fifties and we lost eight to six in the last inning, but we looked really good. I mean, I mean, we never played together before we played a team that's been together for a long time. And, uh, I mean, it was great. I unfortunately went 0 for 3, but man, I hit the ball really well right at people. True said, so True was the bat boy. This was the best part. True was the bat boy in uniform, hustling out there, paying attention to every single thing that was happening. Uh, he was, when I was in the box, I heard him yelling, Dad, wait on it, because the guy had a good curveball. Like, <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, I got to play with my brother, who, you know, it's his first time again playing. And, you know, we played together 20 years ago. He had a, he had a hit and an RBI. And I got a hold of this one, and when I got it, I I thought I got it out, but it was I only apparently have warning track power. But uh, anyway, <laughs> um, so it was exciting. It was not a victory, but anyway, it, it then and then tonight, if I get to coach True, yeah, it's pretty much that's that's what I want for my birthday. So wow, man! Well, happy birthday to you. you! And uh, that sounds like a great birthday. All right, cool, Ravi. I'm very excited that. Our our segment talking trash is growing up a little bit. We're, it's it's staying trivial, eh, not trivial. It's it's going more a little juvenile today, uh, which is to say that we're going to talk about JD Vance, of whom we are on the record of of not being fans. But we're going to do it with a guest. I mean, we've never had a guest for talking trash, and uh, that guest is Josh McLaurin, who was JD Vance's roommate and is now a state representative uh, in Georgia. Uh, so before we get to Josh, Ravi. Tell us about what happened and why why we're at this point. Well, the short story is J.D. Vance won, and, and how he won is informative here because as of April 15th, which, if you're keeping track, is not very long ago, Vance was down significantly in the polls. So he was third in the polls with 10.5% of the vote back then, but April 15th was the day of Trump's endorsement, and I'm using the the real clear politics average there as of April 15th. So Trump endorses him that Friday. You know, 
he surges. You can pull up the graph. I, I tweeted about it yesterday. You'll see that immediately after Trump's endorsement, Vance surges, and he winds up getting 32.2% of the vote. His nearest competitor, Josh Mandel, was at 23.9%. So Vance is the nominee, and he will be facing Tim Ryan in the general election. So sad day for democracy. And, you know, we obviously had some fun at J.D. Vance's expense, but this is obviously serious. But, you know, we're going to joke about it, but it's serious because here's a guy who completely morphed into a Trump clone and talked about how the election was rigged, et cetera, and courted the endorsement of Marjorie Taylor Greene, et cetera. And that seemed to be a winning playbook in this race. And that's really sad. So. Josh here has joined us from a Starbucks in Metro Atlanta, uh, sort of last minute. We said, hey, join us and, and give us some insight. So you were you were roommates with J.D. Vance when? Uh, first year of law school, um, 2010 to 2011. So I had just graduated college. I think maybe he had come out of Ohio State, too, but he was a little older, uh, you know, because he'd served time in the Marines. Um, but thanks for having me on, I should say. Oh, yeah, we should say thanks. Thanks for being here. I guess let's start here. What was he like politically then? So he's always described himself as a conservative, right? And, you know, I, you may be surprised to hear this, but Yale Law School has kind of a high opinion of itself. And so there's a lot of esoteric discussion of philosophers, you know, from both sides of the aisle. But there's a particular fascination at Yale with conservative philosophers, right? Because they are in the minority. So he actually had a community of students and professors to really debate these ideas with. I know because, you know, I took classes from those same professors and uh, and he brought up ideas with me that he was sincerely interested in. I mean, I have a very distinct memory of him struggling with the Second Amendment because he said, you know, he believes that it really does uh, enshrine a right to bear arms, but the purpose of it would be for some sort of violent rebellion against the government. So he was struggling with trying to square constitutional order in which we have to respect that amendment as law uh, with the purpose of the amendment. And I thought, you know, that was a pretty thoughtful analysis, and he seemed to be sincerely concerned about it at the time. I mean, I think the thing that is so surprising to me is that I knew he was angry. <laughs> I knew that he was cynical. A lot of the stuff that he talks about in his book uh, is true, right? That he uh, has a distrust for elite institutions. I think the thing that amazes me is how blind he is to how much he has embraced those same institutions. I think that the narrative that he probably tells himself is that the people that he's aligned himself with, like Amy Chua, Peter Thiel, even though these people are elites, even though these people have access to money and power and relationships, that somehow because they're his guys, they're good guys. It's okay to like leverage that elitism against the rest of the system or whatever. I mean, I'm putting words in his mouth, but I, I, to me, that's the hypocrisy I can't quite wrap my mind around. And that's why I released the text. Yeah, talk about the text, Josh. What, what, what were these texts? We talked about them, I think, briefly on the show, but remind us, walk us through what the texts were and why you decided to release Sure. Those. So, um, you know, I'm a Democrat, right? I'm, I'm a Democratic elected official, ran for office. And so obviously I'm biased. I don't like Trump. I don't stand for a lot of the same positions JD stands for, but it's not like I would just release text messages from somebody to try to burn them or like a you know photo of them dressed up as a funny costume in college or whatever. Like th that kind of leak doesn't make a lot of sense because it's just malicious and it's more about trying to take somebody down than it is about public discourse, right? And so I struggled for a long time with whether to release this. We have these texts from 2016. Um, February 2016 specifically was the one that I released, but it was a time when we had not kept in close touch after law school. And so years later, I reached out to him and I said, look, you know, this is really bumming me out watching Trump rise. I know you're like a pretty reasonable guy, you know, hearkening back to the conversations we had where I knew he cared about ideas. 
And so I just wanted some reassurance from him. I'm like, you know, this guy is kind of special, right? Like, you know, when somebody has that, that kind of X factor, like they might do something cool. And I thought he had the potential to remake the party, really. Um, I actually believed in him a fair extent. And I thought this type of thoughtfulness could maybe be the antidote to the sort of Mitch McConnell power at all costs, like whatever. And so when I reached out, I said, hey, what are your thoughts on what's happening with Trump? And do you have any, you know, sort of idea about where the party might be headed? And that's when he responded with that very fulsome and honest text that said, you know, he thinks Trump is loathsome. He thinks that basically conservative politicians have pandered to their base and distracted them from real economic issues that might matter to them uh, and tried to, you know, race bait, essentially. You know, at the time, I, I thought, okay, wow, so this guy gets it. He, he is conservative, but he knows that Trump is a cancer on the party and on the country, and maybe he has some interest in teaming up to do something about it. So I actually proposed to him writing an op-ed at the time where we would jointly, you know, sort of, sort of come together as like a Democrat and Republican and maybe come up with an idea that we could rally around. You know, maybe like Jason, I know you've talked about empathy in your career before. Um, I had brought up civility. I mean, we were bouncing around ideas and he seemed open to it. Uh, but then a, a few months later, Trump won. And once that happened, uh, he stopped responding to my DMs. <laughs> I was like, hey, man, by the way, I'm going to run for office in Georgia. Maybe we could chat and you could tell me about kind of what your perspective is on this moment. Uh, and it just it sort of fell apart. So after six years of silence, you know, there's a lot of time for him to change and for me to change, too, frankly, and get to a point where I'm like, OK, yeah, it would have been nice to write an op-ed about civility. But like, you know, he's chosen a bigger fight and he's chosen the wrong side. Your hope was for him to remake the party, but I think it's safe to say the party remade him. I think it's 100 percent right. That's a great way of putting it. And I think he did it deliberately because he knew that that was the only way to access power. I mean, you, he has these interviews where he says, I've just got to suck it up and and endorse Trump and go with the system. I think the irony is that Trump is actually kind of weak right now. Like his guy in Georgia, Purdue, is going to get slammed by Kemp. And so Trump is looking for winners to pick. And so to me, it's kind of ironic to think, you know, if J.D. had really charted out a courageous path with, you know, the strength of intellect and whatever that he has, you can imagine that maybe he could have had a lane and, and done pretty well. And instead, he's helping to prop up the guy who he thought he needed to grovel in front of. It's just it's deeply ironic. But I guess that's what you get when you make a bargain with the devil, right? You know, it's interesting for me to think about it as a comparison to Spencer Cox, who has been on the show with us. Some people have, have heard that episode. And if not, they should go back and listen to it because it's a similar experience in that I have a friend who is a Republican who was you know, not thrilled with the direction of the party, had a lot of trepidations about it, or a lot of reservations about it, uh, expressed that to me, then got elected governor and didn't stop saying that. Like, didn't in any way change the person he was and move forward. And then you have a friend who did it the complete opposite. And unfortunately, I think that that is the much more common experience for people who have had these folks who go on to become Republican elected officials in their lives. Totally. And you know, what's crazy too is like, so I thought about my relationships in the state house with Republicans when I leaked this because my JD can take care of himself. My biggest concern was, well, what if my Republican colleagues now think I can't trust that guy? Like I can't talk to him because for all I know, he's going to leak one of our conversations immediately after we have it. Right. And so it made me really reflect on what is trust and who has my trust? And there are Republicans who I trust, like kind of to your point, uh, to think thoughtfully about the issues, to engage in an honest way, and then to, to show up with you know, potential solutions that are bipartisan. 
and JD is just no longer one of those people. I think because he has made the very cynical calculation that a lot of this rhetoric or whatever, some things that we would call democracy, uh, don't matter, right? I think that uh, one thing that people miss a lot when we talk about fascism is the humor aspect of it, the cynicism of it. That in some ways it's a belief that the norms and the systems that we're trying so hard to hold up don't matter. So why bother, right? Because it's all kind of a joke, just like JD literally said that this country is kind of a joke. That's energy that I can trace all the way back to our 1L year, where I would take something seriously and he would laugh cynically at it and be like, what are you talking about? Like, that doesn't matter, right? And so it's, you know, you can always make a good argument if you're conservative that, oh, the left is so tightly wound, they're anxious, you know, they're codependently attached to this idea that they have to be empathetic to everybody they meet and that means that they can't, like, live their own life because they're so worried about other people. Like, that's an extreme that I think Republicans could legitimately criticize us on at times. Uh, But he's taken it to the other extreme, which is his nerve endings for empathy are so burned off, whether it's his childhood or just the cynicism he's allowed himself to drink in, that he no longer has the capacity to see beyond that quick media soundbite, that laugh, that joke with Steve Bannon. I don't know that anything's real to him beyond that now. And while he's laughing at us, thinking like, you guys are getting all bent out of shape, we're losing our country in the process. Well, Josh, on that beautiful note, we're going to send you off. How do our listeners find you and support the work that you're doing. I appreciate you asking. Right now, I've got a shell of a website. I'm switching from a state house to a state Senate race, but Josh for Georgia, all spelled out.com, or you can find me on Twitter, you know, uh, posting, shaking my fist at the sky. But, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to do the work in Georgia. We want to elect Stacey Abrams this year and get a lot of other Democrats in office. So Awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for your time. Ravi, the school year is about to end, which kids get excited when the school year ends. But what I've learned now is that parents also get excited when the school year ends because as true transitions to like summer day camp, it means I don't have to get up quite as early. So I'm excited for that because it allows me to spend more time with my Helix mattress. What I love about Helix mattress is how personalized it is. You take a quiz, just takes two minutes to complete, and it matches your body type and sleep preference to the perfect mattress for you. I love getting these unboxing videos from so many of you who found the mattress of your dreams. And we want the rest of you to take advantage of this. So go to helixsleep.com slash majority 54 to take their two minute sleep quiz and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10 year warranty and you get to try it out for a hundred nights risk-free and they're offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash majority 54. That's helixsleep.com slash majority 54 for up to $200 off and two free pillows. So we've been talking about trade coffee for a little while now. And something that I don't know if I've ever said publicly is that I'm not a coffee drinker. I don't drink coffee. Um, I really never have. But I will tell you that, you know, this coffee came to the house and it smelled so good that I actually, when Diana made it, I was like, I need to actually have a sip of that. It's the first coffee that's ever made me be like, maybe I made the wrong choice. I drink enough coffee for the both of us, Jason, and I've drunk a lot of trade coffee. I love it. And what's really cool is that they have a team that tests thousands of coffees to keep 400 different kinds live and ready to ship every day. And we all know this, there's no one perfect coffee, but there is a perfect coffee for you and Trade's human-powered algorithm will find it. Right now, Trade is offering new subscribers a total of $30 off their first order plus free shipping when you go to Drink trade.com slash m54 that's more than 40 cups of coffee for free and you can get started by taking their quiz at drinktrade.com slash m54 and let trade find you a coffee you'll love that's drinktrade.com slash m54 for 30 dollars off and don't forget about mother's day coming up a trade subscription is the perfect gift for coffee lovers in your life 
Okay, we have two guests today. Uh, our next guest who's going to join us for the rest of the episode is Katie Paris. Katie is a 20-year veteran of national politics and an Ohio suburban mom. She moved to Ohio from Washington, D.C. almost 10 years ago, but it wasn't until Ohio's disappointing election results in 2018 that she quit her job in national politics to focus closer to home. Once she saw the data indicating the opportunity in the suburbs and started meeting with other suburban women across the state, she started Red, Wine, and Blue to create suburban mom infrastructure that could fight disinformation and win campaigns. She now has a staff of 15 organizers and content strategists and a national network of over 300,000 women. That is awesome. Katie, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. Well, it's great timing, Katie, to have you on as a Ohio native. So to bridge from what Josh was talking about, we now look ahead to the general election. We have Tim Ryan on the ballot and questions I was getting on Twitter. I'm sure, Jason, you were getting a lot of them. Katie, I'm sure the same is can we win Ohio? And my short answer is I believe so. It's not going to be easy, but we can win a couple of data points. Democrats uh, for president won Ohio in 2012 with 50.7% of the vote. In 2016, they lost with 43.6% of the vote. That was the low point. 2020 improved a little bit to 45.2%. So it's been dipping, but it's slightly upticked in the last election. Sherrod Brown in 2018 won with 53.4% of the vote in the general election for Senate as a Democrat. Now, important to mention, 2018 was a good year for Democrats. This might not be a good year for Democrats, although some of the new developments this week are shaking things up. Our nominee is Tim Ryan. Katie, we're going to ask you about Tim Ryan in a second, but let's go to a clip because I think one of the things that people who don't know about Tim Ryan, what you need to know, we talked about him a little bit last week, is that he has a particular style to him and a particular energy. And here is a speech he gave after January 6th. Let's roll the clip. I want to thank the gentleman from New York and the other Republicans who are supporting this and thank them for their bipartisanship. To the other 90% of our friends on the other side of the aisle, holy cow, incoherence, no idea what you're talking about. Benghazi, you guys chased the former Secretary of State all over the country, spent millions of dollars. We have people scaling the Capitol, hitting the Capitol Police with lead pipes across the head, and we can't get bipartisanship. What else has to happen in this country? Cops. This is a slap in the face to every rank-and-file cop in the United States. If we're going to take on China, if we're going to rebuild the country, if we're going to reverse climate change, we need two political parties in this country that are both living in reality, and you ain't one of them. (laughs) Katie, add some color to this. How do you feel about Tim Ryan as a nominee? Can we win this thing? Yeah, we're lucky to have him. I mean, listen to the authenticity in that voice that we just heard. This guy's the real deal. The people of Ohio know that he is for them. They know that he likes them. And I've got questions about that when it comes to J.D. Vance. I mean, the cynicism that your last last, uh, guest just discussed, I think voters see through it ultimately. Yes, did he win this election? So, you know, Ohio is a winner-take-all primary. In a lot of states, we would be having a runoff after last night because he only got about 30% of the vote. That GOP primary, almost 70 million was spent in it, all tearing each other apart. You know, people are talking a lot about what the politicians are doing and saying today, Josh Mandel, Mike Gibbons, Matt Dolan, these other candidates that were running in the GOP primary. I'm more interested in these voters who voted 30 percent for Vance, 20 percent for some percent for Josh Mandel. You know, Dolan and Gibbons also got 
you know, a decent portion of the vote. So I'm interested in what happens with these folks now. It's not as if everyone fell in line in that GOP primary with the Trump endorsement. So what happens now? $70 million? That leaves some bruises. Yeah. I, by the way, I'm so excited that you're on this podcast today because you're pumping me up right now. I'm ready to go. Jason, how are you feeling? Yeah, no, that's <laughs> that's really exciting. And it and it fits with what I know of Tim Ryan. I mean, this is a guy who, when I announced that I wasn't going to run for president and I was going to run for mayor of Kansas City, he called me and he was like, can I come to Kansas City and knock on doors with you? Which one is like a very nice thing to do. Two, honestly, like I respect people who have pretty great political instincts. And Tim was like, hey, I do think I want to run for president. This guy had some kind of following. Why don't I just go knock on doors with him and see if I can get... I mean, like, he's also really smart, is my point. I do think he's a smart guy. And I think that, you know, in Ohio, you have both got to be able to turn out that base and reach to the middle. You got to do all the things well to win in Ohio. You know, Rich Cordray, who ran for governor as a Democrat in 2018, he only lost by three and a half points. But Tim Ryan is a way better candidate for Ohio than Rich Cordray. And so there is a lot of opportunity there. And I think that what I've always admired about Tim Ryan, I mean, you just heard the passion in his voice. I think that's going to motivate and fire people up to get out and vote and work hard in this election. And he's working hard. But, you know, also going back to when he first entered Congress, you know, I've done a lot of um, time in my career organizing in the faith community. And, you know, he's got a strong faith background. And he was always coming from that place of values and trying to not just reach across the aisle, but not even looking at some of the most divisive issues of our time in a partisan way. He was always driven by his faith, by his values to connect with other people. And I think that's going to serve him well in this race too. Well, Katie, you talked about getting fired up to vote in November. And I think, you know, one thing that's going to fire people up is the news earlier this week. Politico ran a story releasing a draft opinion of the Supreme Court that appears to be from three months ago, written by Justice Samuel Alito, striking down Roe versus Wade explicitly. And, you know, that was from three months ago. They had five votes then reporting seems to confirm that as of at least the release of that draft opinion this week, they still had five votes. So it's all the conservative justices minus Roberts, who seem to want to track like what he views as a middle ground. I, I don't want to characterize it in my opinion as a middle ground, but something short of a full repeal of Roe. This seems like a huge deal. I'll get to the ins and outs of the decision and where we go from here. But Katie and Jason, this could mean that overnight, a lot of people don't have access to abortion, you know, from a human aspect, what is this really going to mean for people around this country? Yeah, this is huge. Uh, we know that and this decision is coming. I think that we need to start talking about the end of Roe. This is this. I, I have always assumed that this was going to be a six to three or five to four decision, given the current makeup of the court. We have known it is coming. There are 28 states all across the country where abortion is overnight going to become completely inaccessible. Um, you know, this is a hard moment. Yesterday was a hard day and this is a hard week. And what I love about the red wine and blue community is that, you know, when I used to work in D.C., we'd be trying to do our flash polls right now, bring together the focus groups to see, you know, what do suburban women think? Well, I just ask, you know, we've got hundreds of thousands of women that are talking to us every day and that we can talk to. And they're angry. 
You know, there is this deeply felt, this is real, this is visceral, and that is motivating. We are we are feeling this in our bones. I'm hearing women saying, you know, I don't think it's enough to vote this time. And many of our women have just recently become involved. You know, this, these are not people who have been political activists. They come from all kinds of different political party backgrounds. I think that the polls up till now about the midterms did not factor this in. There was a believability gap that basically I've seen somewhere around 20% of Americans believe this actually could happen. Now I think that number could be you know, about quadruple that at least. And so we have seen uh, as recently as the Virginia governor's election where Terry McAuliffe tried to make this a, a big issue. And basically the reaction was, ah, Virginia's not Texas. We're not going to go that way. But now we know that this is happening, and I think that it is going to have a huge impact, unfortunately, not only on women's lives, but, um, well, it's going to be a motivator for the fall. Let me ask, I'm concerned about two things. And one is that because November is still a decent ways away, while I, I absolutely believe that people who, you know, the hundreds of thousands who participate in something like Red Wine and Blue, that there will be no issue with them remaining motivated and keeping this top of mind. But I worry about not just young women, but young people who don't fully like process the meaning of this between now and then. I worry whether that's a thing and, and what, what has to be done to make sure that this is kept top of mind. And the other part is I worry about people feeling like the actual undoing of something this bad is far enough off that it's hard to be motivated by it now. Because looking at the makeup of the court, are we a few years from getting back to a just place and and therefore does it become too far out of reach for people to feel motivated and i don't know i just i wanted to give voice to these things and see what you think yeah well just just to add something before we kick it to katie is that there will be some immediate steps that will be taken just in response to this law based on state law right now there are all these trigger laws around the country where given this decision a bunch of states will automatically ban abortion you have a bunch of states who have already banned abortion like texas effectively and and then you have a bunch of states who i think won't even wait for this decision to be rendered and will issue like even if they have trigger laws in place are going to enact new laws so i think you know kicking it to katie like there will be a little bit of urgency i think because the, the law will change immediately yeah that's true. Yeah, go ahead. It's going to impact a lot of people right away. I, I think that I'm a little bit more worried about the uh, first that you raised, just simply the, you know, are people going to remain motivated about it between now and the fall and younger people in particular? I mean, there is not a person of childbearing age alive today that was alive at a time when we didn't have Roe v. Wade. And so I think that very much has been the problem up till this point when Democrats have tried to sound the alarm on this and say, you know, I'm going to be there for you on this. They're not. And I think why that hasn't resonated is that people just really didn't believe that day would come. Why would it come? Republicans have had political power. They haven't done it. You know, maybe they're just using Roe to rally parts of their base that they know that they need to piece together to have a winning coalition. Maybe it's just a masquerade. I don't think they're really going to do it. Why would they do it? It works better for them as a political issue. And so that sounds kind of rational. But now it is coming and there are going to be immediate impacts. So I think that we're headed into new territory on this. I also think that for Republicans, it is a lot easier to be against something. You know, they've been against Roe v. Wade saying, you mm-hmm. know, we're going we're to tear 100%. this down. We're going to tear this down. And haven't had to answer for, well, what does that actually mean? And I think we need to be asking those questions like, OK, so what are the logistics of this? You know, a teenager is pregnant. She's, you know, many weeks into this thing. She's just found out she does not 
want, she cannot carry this, this baby to term. So now you're, the government is going to mandate that she does have this pregnancy. This is government mandated pregnancy. How does this work? Are we going to lock her in her house? If she tries to cross the border, are we going to drag her back? Once the child is born, what sort of support are we going to provide for that child if the government has mandated that she go through with this? If she does somehow find an abortion, does she go to jail? Does the doctor go to jail? If this was a circumstance of rape, what rights does she have, if any, against the person who did this term? Because obviously they're giving the rapist the right to force her to carry the pregnancy to term. I think these are pretty hard questions to answer. And so no longer are they just going to be able to say, you know, well, this is just where I am morally. You know, you can have differing moral, religious, faith-based positions on this issue. But ultimately, now it's time to start talking about, okay, how is this actually going to work? And the other thing I just have to say, we've got to hold them accountable because what we do know is that making abortion illegal doesn't actually reduce them. It just means they're way less safe and, and women, we're going to have more women die because they're going to be trying to access them dangerously. We know how to reduce abortions. It's comprehensive sex ed and having access to effective forms of birth control. This isn't about reducing. um, This is part of why I didn't think Roe would go away for so long. I thought they wanted it as a political issue. Right. This is not genuinely a way to reduce the number of abortions in this country. It's about power. And I thought that they would be in a better position not having to answer all these questions, but let's make them answer them now. Well, you know, as far as them having to actually deal with it, and logistically what it looks like, you're absolutely right. And one thing that just occurs to me now is that there's a lot of primaries left to be had on the Republican side, which means those primaries are now going to be debated. They're going to happen in an environment where the debate is not uh, who's more you know, anti-choice. The debate is going to be who's like got a plan to be more anti-choice. I mean, they're, they're going to be calling each other on the carpet about are you willing to put women in jail? Are you going to put doctors in jail? So it's a good point. And we should absolutely be amplifying those arguments as they have them, because it's going to demonstrate how ridiculously dangerous these people are. I mean, it's a good point. So the first time in our lifetime in the world of the GOP, it gets tangible in a way that it hasn't before. And, and it'll be really interesting to see how they respond to that. Now, we've talked about holding people accountable. The politics of this are really important. And I think this gets to the mission of this podcast, which is how do you talk to people about this? You know, especially people, I think a lot of people like in your life might be, all right, they're sympathetic to abortion rights, but you need to motivate them. You know, this might be like the men in your life, for example, be like, how do I get people interested in this. I think one of it is there's this Elon Musk tweet where he tweeted earlier in the week about how far the left and the right have moved. And essentially he was trying to say, I've stayed the same. I used to be left, but now the left's gone more left and the right has stayed the same. Now, this is an example of many, you know, obviously January 6th is another example, but this is an example where you can say, look, this is the right explicitly changing what has been a foundational right in this country. You can have all your opinions you want about the original reasoning of Roe versus Wade, but everybody, including Brett Stevens in the New York Times today, agree that regardless of that reasoning, this is a right we all need to protect now. We've all been depending upon it. Most people haven't even lived in a world at this point that didn't have it. They want to change things, and and they're the ones who are moving more extreme. And so that's one angle. Another is accountability. Kavanaugh and Gorsuch both went before the United States Senate and like didn't explicitly promise not to overturn Roe, but we'll let you listeners listen in and you tell us. Let's roll the tape. Uh, Roe v. Wade is an important precedent of the Supreme Court. It's been reaffirmed many times. 
It was reaffirmed in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992 when the court specifically considered whether to reaffirm it or whether to overturn it. In that case, uh, in great detail, the three-justice opinion of Justice Kennedy, Justice Souter, and Justice O'Connor went through all the factors, the stare decisis factors, analyzed those, and decided to reaffirm Roe. That makes uh, Casey precedent on precedent. It's been relied on. Casey itself has been cited as authority in subsequent cases, such as Glucksburg and other cases. Uh, so that precedent on precedent is quite important in, as you think about uh, stare decisis in this context. Gorsuch essentially says the same thing. And Trump explicitly promised, you know, Chris Wallace pushed him in the third debate in 2016. You've said you're going to appoint pro-life judges. Does this mean they're going to overturn Roe versus Wade? Trump essentially said yes. So these are lies, like plain and simple, right? I've stopped having much faith in uh, pointing out a lie as a way to, <laughs> you know, I mean, it really does feel like we're in an era where I, I just don't have confidence that that's going to be the motivator that people are going to say, oh, they lied. That's why I'm upset. I think people are going to be upset because of the real world actual consequences that this has in people's lives. And I think that that is why we need to be amplifying not only the extremism of the position that it takes, but what it does actually mean and asking these hard questions, lifting up the stories of women, the stories that women are sharing every day in our community, talking about how, you know, what is this going to mean for me, for the friend that I helped access when she was in a time of need. I, I took, gave her a ride. You know, is there now like in Texas going to be a bounty on my head? How many would there be based on the life that I have lived, a moral life trying to support my neighbor, be a part of community for my friends? So I think that sometimes we don't focus enough on the real world consequences of this. And I think that there is a huge opportunity to not only fire up people, but again, this is extremism. Suburban women do not like extremism. We don't like it when it comes to attacks on our kids' education, like this book banning mess. We don't like it when Republicans just turn the other way when there's been this crime against America with January 6th. I mean, don't talk to me about crime. Let's talk about that, you know? And, and now we have this when it comes to reproductive health and our freedoms. Government-mandated pregnancy, you cannot be for that and freedom at the same time. I just want to underline that term. I think that's the term, government-mandated pregnancy. That is both accurate and chilling. Yeah. You know, I, I wonder, and this may turn off the suburban moms out there, I wonder if it's time for a nonviolent temperature increase in the hostility we bring to this court, right? You've got a bunch of justices who are appointed by presidents who didn't win the popular vote lying in front of Congress after that, you know, at least the last one promised he would you know, he would appoint people to overturn Roe, getting confirmed by other Republicans. And and then now they're lying to us. And to me, I'm like, you know, what would the other side do right now? They would they would probably resort to violence. They have right. Even when they're in the wrong, we should not ever be violent. But I do think the level of outrage we bring to the doorstep of the Supreme Court needs to be turned up and it needs to be permanent until some kind of structural change happens to this institution. Never mind the fact that they're investigating a leak, right? Which they should, they should investigate a leak, but are devoting no resources to investigating incredibly inappropriate behavior that we've previously covered between Clarence Thomas and his wife and major conflict of interest issues. Like this is an institution that to me has no credibility. You know, when they clutch their pearls about leaks and all this other kind of stuff, like and, and their traditions or whatever, like this is an illegitimate institution in my eyes. Well, the only way we're going to have that kind of accountability is to win more elections. 
Yeah. You know, we have got to be able to replace politicians who support this and refuse to hold this kind of thing accountable by those who will. So I think that having that focus on the importance of 2022, on the importance of 2024, has to be our laser, laser focus right now. So Ravi, this week, Diana had uh, a couple of speeches uh, that she had to travel to, and she frankly wasn't feeling that well. True had brought something home, like a, a stomach thing that had actually, by the way, caused him to get pretty sick in my truck. But Diana got that, and she managed not to get sick in anybody's vehicle or truck or at all, but she was dealing with nausea and just fatigue, and she had to give these speeches and get through them. Her answer to this was to take extra travel packs of AG1 with her, and it allowed her to power through, uh, so it, it allowed her to do her job. That warms my heart. Tough woman, that Diana Kander. But even tougher when she takes AG1, because it means that she has that nutritional insurance. She gets all of the vitamins, minerals, superfoods, probiotics, etc. And she doesn't need to take a whole bunch of different stuff. She just takes one thing. And you know what? We want you listeners to take advantage of this too. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash majority. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Well, it could be really hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel when you have high interest debt, and sometimes it could be even harder to ask for help, and that's where Upstart comes in. Upstart-powered personal loans can help you pay down high-interest debt all online with simple and easy-to-understand payments. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high-interest debt, or funding personal expenses, Upstart can help you get one fixed monthly payment with a clear payoff date. And Upstart knows you're more than just your credit score, so rather than looking at your credit score alone, Upstart's model considers other factors like your income, employment, other information provided in your loan application to find you a smarter rate for your loan. You can check your rate minutes and for loans between $1,000 to $50,000 without impacting your credit score. So you can even receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. That's super fast. Don't wait and check out your rate today at upstart.com slash majority54. That's upstart.com slash majority54 to check your rate today. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash majority54. So you brought up book banning, and which is a reference to the Red Wine and Blue Book Ban Busters Project. So tell us a little bit about that. So around this time last year, our networks just started lighting up with people saying, is weird stuff going down at your school board meeting? Are people showing up at your school board meeting that you've never seen before? These people don't even have kids in the district. What is happening? They were all using the same talking points, the exact same tactics. And it was all happening in these very suburban areas that are becoming more diverse and have been shifting away from Republicans in the last couple of election cycles. So we knew something orchestrated was going on here. We knew there was probably a lot of funding behind this effort, knew there were probably the traditional big right-wing think tanks funded by the same old billionaires behind this. Lo and behold, that turned out all to be true. But this all started literally with women saying, has anyone heard of something called CRT? You know, they wouldn't even get the acronym right half the time because nobody was taught. It wasn't a thing. It's not a thing. Now, this evolved throughout the year. We launched what we call our troublemaker trainings, where every week we bring suburban moms together who are just like, what the hell is going on in my community? What is up with all this extremism? Like the school board meetings are supposed to be boring. 
And also we're supposed to be focused on like this teacher shortage and substitute teacher shortage and bus driver shortage. And the fact that my kids just had to do virtual learning. What are we doing to catch them up? Like, why are we having all these extremist attacks? Well, we are having them because the people who are driving them don't like public education. They've always wanted to undermine it. And they saw a wide open opportunity to exploit the exhaustion and frustration that parents have experienced legitimately having been through, you know, a couple of years of um, learning in a pandemic. And this evolved, though, and the attacks got more and more extreme by the end of the year. They started with the book banning, trying to pull books off. I mean, this is extreme. They have tried to pull off books from the shelves about Ruby Bridges, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, anything that has to do with LGBT characters, you know, a a children's book about, you know, a child having two moms or two dads. So, you know, the extremism is is very transparent, but we we saw this as an overreach. And frankly, also an opportunity. Our moms are just so frustrated of being on defense trying to say there's no critical race theory here. Like why is this even a thing, you know? It's but it's hard to defend when it's just not even a thing and they're making it a thing. And so the book bans have given our moms an opportunity to get off defense and say cuz you know what nobody knows what CRT is like still, but they know what a book ban is. They know what a book ban is and they don't like them. Americans don't like them like 80 plus percent, like no matter your political party. So we had gotten to this point where these right wing groups were sort of defining the parent narrative. Mainstream parents were so frustrated, feeling like that doesn't represent me. So things have shifted quite a bit. You know, I think that people have woken up to how significant these attacks on our school boards and these education issues can be in an electoral context. The Virginia election was a wake up call in that regard. It felt like we were kind of out there in the wilderness last year, just trying to support moms, figuring out what to do about this extremism in their communities. And But that shifted now. There's more attention on it. You know, we feel like we do have the momentum. They are on the defensive now. You will hear them saying all the time, we're not for book banning. You could still get that book at Amazon. Just order it for Barnes and Noble. You know, kind of like I think <laughs> the parallel with Roe. You know, right. now, like you, you saw Republicans coming out yesterday saying, you know, they're, they're on the defensive immediately trying to say, oh, yeah. no, we don't want to put anyone in jail. Well, well, well then what are you going to do? Well, that's music to our ears, like going on the offensive because, you know, Jason's a Chiefs fan. I'm a Bills fan. We only know offense. We don't know anything yes. about defense. But uh, make this tactile for us. You know, I've, I've been trying to wrap my head around what's happening out there in the suburbs right now. Like maybe, you know, talk about where you live. Like, is there that parent that you used to be close with? Maybe you even grew up with them. Who you now see at the school board meetings acting differently. Like, are you starting to see the tentacles from national organizations like, you know, injecting their talking points into your community, driving people apart. I've always just been curious as to how it feels on the ground in some of these communities. Yeah. You know, I am lucky to live in a suburb where there's just a whole lot of support for public education. It's very diverse here. We're a little bit closer into Cleveland, but if I drive about 15 minutes in any direction, and I have been to a lot of these school board meetings, yeah, the tension is is palpable. And there is a lot of sadness about some loss of friendships, for sure. It's real. People have lost friends to QAnon. They've lost, you know, brother-in-laws or a sister-in-law to QAnon. And that that pain is real. And we actually spend a lot of time supporting women who are who are experiencing those really hard feelings. Um, but what I will say is that those those still are the minority voices. They can be the loudest ones. You know, it's that tea party energy, you know, that they're bringing to these school board meetings and, you know, yelling and shouting and even pushing and shoving in some cases. And that can feel 
disheartening. But what we have found is that at first the reaction is, I don't want any part of that. But what we try to equip women to do is say, you know what? Somebody's got to stand up to that. The loudest voices can't represent all of us, but you, but you don't have to do it like them. Let's do it in a way that makes our kids proud. We're going to show up with that calm face. We are going to show up, you know, 25 of us at a time, you know, and let's let's all come and, and wear our stickers that are, you know, supporting the schools and supporting our teachers. Let's bring positivity. Let's hold a school supply drive for our teachers outside before the school board meeting. Let's show up an hour early and all read banned books outside just quietly while they have their screaming and yelling protests. We call it our banned book read-ins, you know, and it's just feel good about how you are. You're pro-knowledge, you're pro-education. You just want high quality, excellent education for your kids and represent that. And what we find is that once we start doing this and we do it not just once, but twice and maybe the third or fourth time, the other side gets worn out. It's just not that fun anymore to yell and shout over and over again when you have these other parents are showing up who are, you know, just being calm and, you know, the vocal minority thing gets unveiled. So when we organize, we win. It's not always easy to get started, but actually what we find is that once you do get started, that these women are very heartened and empowered quickly because more other parents join them than than they ever imagined. Something you said really stuck with me, which is that book bans are are unpopular. And, And I think that that's important to underline because given the fact that they are largely trying to ban books about people of color or about people from the LGBT community, and you know, there are Democrats in states like mine whose instinct is to try, you know, it's not that they are necessarily going to take uh, the wrong position on those issues, but they are told by their consultants to de-emphasize those issues, right? Because they think yes. that they're, they're not good issues to be, uh, to be on offense about. And I think it's important what you're saying, which is that it is a, an unforced error by the right to take what is an advantageous position for them in in rural places and suburban places and turn it into a tactic that is unpopular. And it, it actually makes me think of the movie Field of Dreams, where toward the beginning of the movie, when uh, uh, I forget, I forget her name. I forget the the main character's name, uh, or not the main character, but the the woman who who gives the speech. But she gives a, a great speech in a school board meeting against banning books. And I think it's important because it's an iconic movie. It's an iconic movie, and no one is has ever been like you know. I love that movie, but I really I I can't truck with that that position that she took. I mean, she's the hero of that scene, and that is an Americana movie. And I think that that is important. That's right. You know, earlier I said that you can't be for government mandated pregnancy and be for freedom at the same time. Guess what else? You can't be for book banning and for freedom at the same time. You know, like, let's not let go of what our values are here. And I'll be honest, I've been really frustrated with Democrats for listening to those consultants instead of to the moms, because the moms that we're working with are in red states and blue states. And, you know, look, Terry McAuliffe did this, totally ignored these school board controversies. He was worried that would be like playing on Youngkin's turf. Well, you know what that did? It left a lot of these moms feeling they had Fox News and the conservative media parked in their backyard, spewing all these lies. And it felt like no one was sticking up for them. That all this, you know, this is very divisive in communities. And so we need to have their backs. You know what it also did? It left those sort of swing voter moms who they're trying to fearmonger and scare away from Democrats, it left them with a lot of questions because nobody was answering them. 
And so if they, if we just let these lie, it's a very old playbook and not recognizing of the current media environment and ecosystem that is real. You cannot just sit these things out. You yeah. need to recognize that this is, if something's going on in the local community, you got to speak to it. And you got to do it in a way that owns your values. And why? Why are we so scared to speak out on something? Again, we're more than, I think it's CBS to the poll, where it's like 87% of Americans were against banning books. You know, like, let's, this is, this is not, I think there's sometimes a fear among these consultants that like, oh, if I'm going to speak out on this issue, then that's going to make me sound like a graduate school woke law school professor. Don't. Don't talk like a graduate school law professor, not on this that issue or any other one. You know who you right. should listen to and talk like? A mom. A mom showing up at the school board meeting. Or maybe that field of dream speech. I got to go look that up. I forgot about that. You, what you made me think of is like a classic strategic move that you're making, which is trying to take the, the perceived strength of your of our opponents and make it a weakness, right? It's something that happens in sports. It's something that happens in politics. It happened to Hillary Clinton, who was really smart and prepared and had a lot of experience. And, you know, both Obama and Trump took that background from her and said, well, that's actually a weakness. Like your, your experience in Washington is a problem. And what we need to do, and DeSantis is a perfect example of this, is say, look, you think you're winning on this. How can we take what you're doing and turn it back on you and actually have voters perceive it as a weakness? And, you know, Jared Polis provided an example of that by saying DeSantis is a socialist, essentially, for the way he's treating Disney, you know? The nice thing is it all comes down to actually just really loudly saying what we think. Like, like we think government-mandated pregnancy is bad, and we think book burning is bad. Like, and to be – I know this is like a third rail, but, like, I think it's accurate. Like, you know who burned books? Like, Nazis. That's who burnt books. Like – only J.D. Vance is allowed to make Nazi analogies. Exactly, exactly, yes. In text messages to our first guest. Um, yeah. But but I mean, like, no. Does that mean I'm calling them Nazis? No, but I am saying they're doing a thing Nazis did. And and I don't think we should be shy about saying that. Like, that's what they're doing. Yep, absolutely. And we have Republican state legislators endorsing book burning, actually, you know, on the the floors of the, the houses of their, you know, state senate, state legislatures, whatever. This is real. I think sometimes our side yeah, is shy about calling this stuff out. You know, why? And and this this whole strategy of taking, just as you said, they did with Hillary, Karl Rove did this all the time. It was the smartest thing he did Swift over boats. and over again. Yes, with yep. veterans for truth. Yes, exactly. And so whenever a Democrat says, you know what? I think we can just, you know, ride this out. I always think of Swift Boat Veterans for Truth. And I think, are you are you playing from the pre-2004 playbook? You know, it used to work. That used to work, but not not really since then. It's 2022. We need to wake up. So I appreciate you all seeing it. Let's let's evangelize this to others, please. All right, Katie, for Road to the Midterms, we invite our guest to highlight for us uh, a group or a candidate or a cause or something that people may not be aware of right now, but they should be. So in the 2022 elections, you're hearing a lot about the federal races, right? U.S. Senate, U.S. House races. Very important. Absolutely. And I appreciate you all talking about Secretary of States and, and other offices that are important to defend democracy. But those aren't the only ones. You know, suburban women are on the front lines of defending our democracy at these school board meetings that I have been talking about. The extremists are trying to mainstream extremism, and they are doing that through these school boards. They are doing that at the highly, highly local level. 
And so we need to stand up for that. So what I want to ask that a lot of these primaries are still going on, but we will pretty soon have uh, the school board candidates that will be on the ballot in November. Some states like Michigan, like North Carolina, every single one of their uh, school board races will be happening this November. A whole lot of them are happening in Texas. So I just want people to make sure to find out who is running for school board, who's elected is making a huge difference now more than ever when it comes to book banning. We had um, a school district where some of these extremist candidates won in Ohio just last year. They just canceled the high school's diversity day. You know, don't can't have that. If you don't think that, you know, book banning and this kind of extremism in our schools is really the best path for public schools, please, please look up your school board races. Awesome. Thanks. Well, tell people where they can find Red Wine and Blue, where they can get involved. Yeah, absolutely. So our website is redwine.blue. Uh, and But mostly we are all over social media every day. Our handle on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter is at Red Wine Blue USA, Red Wine Blue USA. So get in on the conversation. You don't have to be political. It doesn't matter your political background, no matter where you are on your journey. It just matters that we're there together and we're, um, we all want to show up for each other. We'd love to have you all join us. Hey, this is great. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. Let's get those Democrats off defense. All right. Okay, uh, for Grab and Ore, uh, I don't know if I've mentioned it, but I have this book coming out July 5th, and I have a different Grab and Ore than last time. Last time, I mentioned the fact that all of my royalties from this book, Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD, which comes out July 5th, will go toward uh, combating veteran suicide and veteran homelessness through Veterans Community Project. This week, what I'm telling you is, is that you have an opportunity, listeners, to read the book months before anybody else. And what you got to do is you got to become a member of the launch team. And the launch team is going to be a group of people who pre-order the book and who, uh, you know, commit to evangelizing about the book a little bit, telling some friends, going on social, that kind of thing. You can apply to become a launch team member by going to jasoncander.com slash launch team. You'll receive an advanced copy of the book months before it's available for sale. You'll see the behind the scenes of what it takes to bring a book to life and get it to the public. And you'll join Diana and myself for a private event discussing the book and answering any of your questions that obviously Obviously, that's not just in Kansas City. It, it, it's a virtual event, so we can do a Zoom and answer your questions, like do your own little book club, basically. Uh, and then we're always open to other suggestions of additional bonuses that we can offer to the launch team because we want this to be a VIP experience. So go to jasoncander.com slash launch team and uh, get a chance to read this book before anybody else, well before anybody else. Well, Jason, I have an idea for the launch team. Now, I, I don't know if you'll like this idea, but I think we should get it banned <laughs> uh, in a town because it'll be good PR. You know what I'm saying? Like I do have a fair amount of four letter words in this book. I mean, it's possible. Although I don't think yeah. that the unfortunately that's not actually what offends. There's like a, there's like a vulnerability you show in this book that Ooh, I think they could find. Offensive. That's a good point. You know what I'm it, saying? Is, it does yeah. not display an exclusively traditional version of masculinity. That could be a problem yeah. in some places. So I'm yeah. Well, here's hoping. Here's yeah, hoping. Yeah. Um, so all we'll right. get on that. We'll get on that. All right. Uh, you can leave us a voicemail or an email. Uh, you can you know, let us know who you've been talking to for our Pledge to Persuade campaign, whether you've had any successes, failures. Let's talk about it. You can leave us a voicemail at 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. You can email us 
m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Katie Paris uh, is at Katie B. Paris. That's B as in Bravo. At Katie B. Paris on Twitter. Josh is at Josh for Georgia. Uh, and it's all spelled out uh, on Twitter. Uh, and so feel free to follow them. And then our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, and Adesua Agmanile. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Candle. All right. I think, uh, I think the, I, I remember the character's name, the Annie Kinsella speech at the end of Field of Dreams could be oh, the PS on the episode. Well, yeah. All right, I've got a better idea. Let's put it to a vote, all right? Who's for Eva Braun here? Who wants to burn books? Who wants to spit on the Constitution of the United States of America? Anybody? All right. Now, who's for the Bill of Rights? Who thinks freedom is a pretty darn good thing? Come on, come on, let's see those hands. Who thinks that we have to stand up to the kind of censorship that they had under Stalin? All right. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.